Let us bow in prayer. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 2 to 19. Matthew 11, 2 to 19. Hear what Holy Scripture says. When John, that is John the Baptist, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if anyone in this room, getting up this morning, looked deeply into the mirror and said, I am greater than King David. Or alternatively, I am greater than Solomon. No? 
What do you make of verse 11? Truly I tell you, Jesus says, among those born of women, which is reasonably comprehensive, <laughs> among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, everyone is smaller than John the Baptist. There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So perhaps you don't want to say, I am greater than Elijah, but um, are you greater than John the Baptist? Isn't the least in the kingdom of heaven greater than John the Baptist? Are you amongst the least in the kingdom of heaven? Doesn't that make you greater than John the Baptist? And you suddenly realize there is depth in this passage that needs to be explored and probed a bit. What is Jesus saying? I'm going to break the passage into three parts, and then we'll reflect briefly on what it means for us today. First, John, Matthew offers us a portrait of a discouraged Baptist. I am not speaking denominationally. We're introduced to John the Baptist, and he is discouraged. Verse 2. When John, who was in prison, that's reported as early as chapter 3, was in the prison of Machedus, put there by Herod. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? The expression, the deeds of the Messiah, the deeds of Christ, is, is a generic, comprehensive category. It includes Jesus' teaching, as in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus' training of disciples, as in chapters 8 and 9, and his miracles that he performs. His discourses, like chapter 10. And John the Baptist, now parked in prison, has enough movement back and forth through his disciples to, to hear these reports. But instead of saying, so glad that the Messiah has finally come, he says, I want you to take a message to this man, Jesus, and ask him, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Have we got this lined up right? There is no way to avoid the fact that John the Baptist was discouraged. People have tried over the centuries. They've said, oh, well, actually, John wasn't discouraged. He had it figured out. But he wanted his disciples to, to follow Jesus as well. So he sent them along, he sent them along with this question, and, 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 and that way they'd get to know Jesus for themselves. But there's no hint that that's what's going on in this passage or in the following verses. The fact of the matter is John the Baptist is entertaining doubts. Why? After all, there are lots of people in the Bible, both Old Testament and New, who face more discouraging circumstances than John the Baptist. Many are beaten up, some are stoned to death, 
Many die, some are starved, face persecution of one sort or another. John the Baptist is in prison, fair enough, but <clears throat> it's Mercatus, it's not a bad place by our first century Roman prisons. And he obviously has access to his own disciples. They, they come and bring him things. That's the way it was done in those days. The disciples brought you your food and he can have conversation with them and send notes to other people through their hand. It's, it's, it's not solitary confinement. He's not being tortured. And he does not know that he's going to have his head cut off in three more chapters. So he's not living in mortal fear either, but he's discouraged because he's not at all sure that the man called Jesus the Messiah truly is the Messiah. Why? Why? Well, it becomes obvious that the part of his discouragement that is of most interest to us is the fact that his expectations are a little different. What John the Baptist said about Jesus in his earlier ministry, you can read in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist is saying, in effect, all right, we hear the sermons. We see the miracles. Where's the fire? Where's the judgment? Where's the end of all things that separates wheat from chaff? Are you the one who is to come or do we look for somebody else? John the Baptist is discouraged because Jesus isn't turning out to be the kind of Messiah that John the Baptist expected. And sometimes we are discouraged in our contemplation of God or of Jesus or of the gospel because it turns out that sometimes Jesus or the gospel aren't behaving the way we think they should. And we fall into discouragement. Some of the point is made by the way Jesus answers these emissaries from John. Look at the following verses, 4, 5, and 6. Jesus replies to the emissaries from John, verse 4, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. What's the evidence? The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that almost all of these lines are direct quotations from the Old Testament. They're quotations from the book of Isaiah. And we know that John the Baptist had a good knowledge of the book of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah himself on occasion. In this instance, the words are drawn primarily from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 35, we read... 
Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, Isaiah 35.5, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in wilderness and streams in the desert. Or again in chapter 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The only line in this answer of Jesus that is not found in Isaiah is this mention of the healing of leprosy. But all the rest is direct quotation. In other words, Jesus is saying, in effect, before you write me off as the Messiah, consider all the messianic things that I am doing. And then he adds further, Matthew 11, verse 6, blessed is the one who is not dismayed or not discouraged or stumbling on account of me. In other words, Jesus is saying, look at what I'm doing. Doesn't the evidence of what I'm doing fit the prophecies of what the Messiah will do? This isn't the time to be discouraged or to quit. Blessed is the one who perseveres. But the tricky bit is that those two passages from Isaiah that Jesus quotes also have words of vengeance and wrath in them. So Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, we've already looked at. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. But just two verses earlier in Isaiah 35, we read verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. So John's response would be, where's the vengeance? Where's the retribution? You're not answering my question. And in Isaiah 61, yes, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Yes, yes. But in the next verse, he has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Where's the day of vengeance of our God? And John the Baptist is discouraged. In other words, John the Baptist believes that when the Messiah comes, he comes not only with blessing for the Lord's people, he comes with divine wrath, vengeance, retribution. And John the Baptist isn't seeing that. Jesus does not here give a full explanation, but he does say, the positive evidence is strong enough for you to recognize that I really am the Messiah. Don't quit and become discouraged now. So here's a portrait of a discouraged Baptist. And in truth, sometimes on our discouragements, what triggers the discouragement is that we have disappointed expectations. We sometimes think that God has to do a certain thing or answer our prayers a certain way or respond with a certain healing or Enables us, enables us to get a certain job or whatever. And, and because it doesn't work out quite the way we expected, therefore somehow he is the one who has failed. 
But somewhere along the line, one of the things that God often does is show us what he has done, all the things that do line up with the announcement of his character. And blessed now, he says, is the one who does not turn away or stumble or falter because of me. That's only the first part of the answer, but it is part of it. Portrait of a discouraged Baptist. Then in the second place, portrait of a defended Baptist. In the following verses, seven and following, Jesus turns to the crowd and talks to them about John the Baptist. It appears that this dialogue between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus was in public hearing. Crowds were around. People heard what was going on. And you can imagine that some of them were saying things like, well, John the Baptist turns out to be a bit of a disappointment, doesn't he? When going gets tough, he whines and complains. Where's his heroic faith? And Jesus won't let John's critics get away with it. He says, as the disciples of John are leaving, he says to the crowd, about John, what did you expect? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? When you went out to hear this preacher, this preacher of righteousness, calling the nation to repentance, this man called John the Baptizer, when you went out to see, to see him, to hear him, what did you go out for? What did you expect to see? A reed swayed by the wind, no backbone, no stiffness, just blown about. Is that what you expected? Is that why you went out to listen to this man, John? And of course, that's not why they went out at all. They went out to hear thunder and lightning. They went out to hear judgment and truth. They went out to hear a call for repentance. So if you didn't go out to see a reed swayed by the wind, if not, what did you go out to see? Hmm? A man dressed in fine clothes? Of course, in those days, there was a substantial upper class and a substantial underclass, but there was a much smaller middle class. You either wore poor clothes or you were well-dressed. So what did you go to see? Somebody who's posh? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in kings' palaces. You didn't go out to hear John the Baptist because he was dressed so spectacularly you thought maybe you'd get some tips or pull in some sort of blessing in your own account. No, the people who wear fine clothes are in the aristocratic houses. They, they are the ones who live in king's palaces, like the king who put me in prison. Is that what you expected? And of course they didn't. Then what did you go out to see? Hmm? What did you go to see? A prophet? And now because of the repetition of such questions, we're expecting Jesus to say, no, 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 you didn't go to see a prophet. But in fact, what he says is just the opposite. Yep, you were right about that. You went out to see a prophet. But I tell you, more than a prophet. More than a prophet? How is John the Baptist more than a prophet? 
This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. Another quotation from the Old Testament, this from the prophet Malachi. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is more than a prophet who speaks the words of God. He is the one about whom a certain prophecy is declared. He is not only the human author of important prophecies, he is the subject of prophecy. He is, he is himself the one who was sent to prepare the way of the Messiah. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. In other words, Jesus says in solemn words, John the Baptist is greater than Abraham. John the Baptist is greater than David. John the Baptist is greater than Solomon. John the Baptist is greater than Hezekiah. The words are startling. I tell you, among those born of women, again, reasonably comprehensive, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Why? What makes him so great? Well, what makes him so great when you read the sequence of verses 9, 10, and 11 is that he fulfills the prophecy mentioned in verse 10. The prophecy from Malachi that points out that he is the one who points out who Jesus is. Now, there is a sense, of course, in which Abraham anticipates the coming of Jesus. There is a sense in which Moses anticipates the coming of Jesus. There is a sense in which David points forward to the coming of Jesus. But it befell only one person, this man called John the Baptist. It befell only one person to say, there. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There. That's the promised Messiah. It fell to him, to one man, to point out who Jesus is. And then he says something initially utterly mysterious, which brings us to the third portrait. Portrait of a discouraged Baptist. Portrait of a defended Baptist. Jesus has defended John. But now portrait of an eclipsed Baptist. Someone greater than John. Look at the second half of verse 11. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. How so? Well, John the Baptist is greater than all the ones who came before him because we've just learned from the prophecy, prophecy given through Malachi that he is the one who pointed out who Jesus is. It fell to him to point out who the Messiah is. And now the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist because the least in the kingdom points out who Jesus is with greater clarity and immediacy than John the Baptist. I don't know this congregation. A few faces I've recognized. But I imagine there are some here who have been converted in the last uh, six weeks, six months. Your knowledge of Scripture might still be a little thin. 
But if you are amongst the least in the kingdom, you're greater than John the Baptist. Why? You see, this only makes sense if the standard of comparison is the same in both cases. What makes John the Baptist so great as compared with those who came before him? The fact that it came to him to point out who Jesus was most clearly and most immediately. What makes the least in the kingdom greater than John the Baptist? Same answer. It falls to us to point out who Jesus is with greater immediacy and clarity. You may be a very young Christian, just beginning to find your way in the kingdom. But you can respond when somebody asks, who do you say Jesus is? Well, you might reply, I, I can't give a very detailed answer. You, you can ask the pastor about that. But I, I do know that he died on the cross and paid for my sin. I, 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 I do know that he's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I, I, I do know that he rose from the dead. I do know that he's coming again at the end of the age to wrap up all things. I, I do know that even angels and archangels bow before him and confess him alone to be God, one with the Father. I don't understand some of this Trinity language. I, I don't understand how he pulled off this resurrection bit. But I know that he bore my sin in his own body on the cross. The least Christian, the youngest believer, the most recent convert can say that. And thus point out who Jesus is with greater immediacy and clarity than all who came before the turn of the ages. They can announce who Jesus is with greater clarity than John the Baptist could. And that's what makes them great. All the rest of the verses in our passage are lined up to make the same point. I don't have time to go through them in detail, but let me draw your attention to a bit of the argument. From the days of John the Baptist until now, that is from the days of the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, which is when Jesus' public ministry began as well, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. That is, Jesus has been announcing the dawning of the kingdom. He has been performing miracles, healing the sick, even raising the dead, and he has suffered increasing abuse because of it. The next chapter, chapter 12, recalls story after story of how people have, have tried to turn on him and he, he, he does miracles by the prince of the demons himself. Uh, he, 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 is, he is dismissed and rejected and turned aside. From the days of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, announcing the dawning of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. Violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, that is, the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets and the law, they predicted the coming of the Messiah. They prophesied until John the Baptist came. That's what they did. 
And if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who was to come. That's referring back to Malachi again. It's the prophecy of Malachi that predicts that one like Elijah is coming to announce the, 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 the dawning of the Lord's day. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. The one that Malachi had announced. The one that he, John the Baptist, that Jesus himself is quoted from in verse 10. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Then Jesus gives a couple of brief vignettes to drive the point home. To what can I compare this generation? Hmm? What's going on here, he says. Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. There are two groups here of children. One group says, let's play weddings. You can be the bride, you can be the groom, you can be the officiant. We need a couple of flute players. We'll sing, we'll dance. Let's, let's, let's play weddings. It'll be fun. And the other group says, boring. We played that last week. Don't want to play it again this week. Well, okay, we don't want to play weddings. Let's play funerals. You can be the corpse. We need three or four pallbearers. We won't sing happy music. We'll sing dirges. It can be fun playing dead people. And the other group replies, boring. We don't want to do that either. So the first group responds with a little poem. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. No matter what we suggest, you don't do it. You find reasons not to do it. Now he teases out what he's getting at. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking. That is, he was known to be a bit severe. Wasn't going to drink any alcohol. He was somewhat on the cultural right wing. John came neither eating nor drinking. And the critics say, uh, he's probably demon-possessed to be that conservative. He has a demon. Or alternatively, they see the happy crowd just ready to have a party and play dances. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can tell a person by the company he keeps. He's a friend of tax collectors. He's a public sinner. He, he, he belongs to that crowd. And Jesus' final summary is, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. That is, in both the case of John the Baptist and the case of Jesus, they were right in what they did, in the specific ministry they were called to. And the critics are still criticizing, and nothing is getting done. In other words, the crowd didn't like John the Baptist. 
The crowd doesn't like Jesus. One is considered too ascetic. The other is known as a bit of a party guy. He actually turns water into wine on occasion. Mm. But in both cases, the critics want the top billing for themselves. So what are we to make of all of this? First, the deepest Christian criteria for greatness, individually and corporately, are not the criteria of the world. What makes you or me great? Wealth? Advanced degrees? Bloodlines? Power? Beauty? Youth? Ethnicity? Where you live? Popularity? They don't even cause a flicker on Jesus' radar. It's not that any of those things individually is bad. But if our assessment of ourselves, if our self-understanding, if our self-evaluation is tied to standards that are so tightly tied to pasting ephemeral habits. Then our standards are so skewed we can't be trusted with anything. Well, the deepest Christian criteria for greatness then, individually and corporately, are not the criteria of the world. Christian criteria for greatness, in the second place, are radically Christ-centered. They're bound up with the fact that you know Jesus and make him known. We sometimes sing it in little choruses, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. You're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. Indeed, sometimes we stumble across passages that make this clear and we don't instantly grab hold of what is being said. Do you recall how John 15 says that you are my friends if you do what I command you? John 15, the farewell discourse. So we start to think, Jesus is interested in friendship. I want to be his friend and he wants to be my friend. A friendship, friendship is shared. But the interesting thing is that Jesus' understanding of friendship is radically different from contemporary notions of friendship. Our notions of friendship are tightly bound up with reciprocity. But Jesus says, 
You are my friends if you do what I command you. That doesn't sound very reciprocal. You can't talk back and say, hmm, okay, you're my friend if you do what I tell you too. We're Jesus' friends if we do what he commands us. It's a peculiar notion of friendship bound up with the peculiar relationship between Jesus, our maker and redeemer, and us, his redeemed, blood-bought servants. So Christian criteria for greatness are radically different from the criteria of the world. And they're bound up, hugely bound up, with such transformation having taken place in our lives that we want to be his servants. We want to do what he says. We confess him to be master and Lord. So we don't want to be like this generation's whiners who bemoan what they don't have, who criticize what they see, who criticize what's missing. They're always critics, but they don't see who Jesus is. And then lastly... Christian criteria for greatness are radically tied not only to who Jesus is, but to the proclamation of who Jesus is. Think through this passage we've just read. John the Baptist is greater than those who came before him because he could point out with more immediacy and clarity who Jesus is than all who came before him. In other words, it's not just who Jesus is that's important, but the fact that John the Baptist is pointing out who Jesus is. He's proclaiming, he's preaching, he's announcing. And the least in the kingdom today is greater than John the Baptist because we can point out with greater clarity than John the Baptist could who Jesus is. It's not just the fact that we know him, as wonderful as that is, but that it is given to us to announce him with greater immediacy and clarity than John the Baptist himself could. And that's what constitutes our greatness. To have a church full of Christians who never talk about the Lord or never share their faith or are never interested in announcing the gospel or praying for others is, is a contradiction in terms because it's part of belonging to the kingdom not only to know this Jesus but to make him known and thus even the least in the kingdom are held up by the Lord Jesus himself as greater in the sweep of redemptive history than John the Baptist who is greater than those who came before him. This shows up in different ways, of course, in the New Testament. There's a remarkable passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 where you sense again this, this shift in what's happening in history. 
Concerning this salvation, chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Peter, the prophets, that is Old Testament prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, the people of Peter's day, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would come. So they were announcing Jesus' coming and his suffering and the glories that would come. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look these things into these things. It has come to us at the end of the age to point out who Jesus is with greater clarity and immediacy than all previous generations of believers could understand. Shall flowers hide their beauty? Shall rainbows turn to gray? Shall thunderstorms be muzzled? Shall lambs forget to play? All unthinkable things. And shall I be silent at grace beyond degree? Before the cross, I count as loss what once was dear to me. Let us pray. In truth, Lord God, the more we contemplate the Lord Jesus himself and recognize afresh that he was bruised for our iniquities, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He appointed us as his fellow heirs. We have been redeemed by his death and resurrection. The more we contemplate these things, Lord God, the more we are compelled eagerly to share Christ with others. And the significance of our very existence, of our very being, is bound up with such privileges as these. So renew our understanding of your dear Son and his gospel. And renew, too, we beg of you, our ability to share him with others. For Jesus' sake. Amen.